Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Psalms, chapter 23, or 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the days long, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would show us how good you are. As we come into this passage, uh, direct our eyes toward that end, that goal, Father, that uh, we might not rest in anything else but in uh, Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior today, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since time has begun, uh, human beings have been telling stories that have, with a particular twist that explore the question, what is real? My first experience of this uh, type of story was a story when I was a child. Um, it was in black and white, Channel 2, Denver, um, Twilight Zone, and the title was The Midnight Sun. The story went something like this. The earth had kind of changed its elliptical uh, orbit, and it was following a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day, is taking the earth closer to the sun. 
prolific artist Norma and her landlady Mrs. Bronson are the last residents in their New York City apartment building. Their former neighbors had either moved north to seek a cooler climate or they had simply perished um, from the extremely high temperatures. At 20 minutes to midnight, it's 110 degrees Fahrenheit and sunny as high noon. Norma and Mrs. Bronson try to support each other as they watch life as they know it erode around them. The streets are deserted. Water usage is uh, limited to an hour a day. Their electricity is gradually being turned off. As the temperature rises to 120, the two women grow weak. Norma burns her hand uh, on the windowsills. Mrs. Bronson becomes psychologically unstable, beseeching Norma to paint a picture of a cool subject. In an attempt to console Mrs. Bronson, Norma shows her an oil painting of a waterfall that's going into, falling into a lush pond. Mrs. Bronson deliriously claims that she can feel the coolness and, and, and delightfully splashes in imagery water, of the waters before dying from heat stroke. Norma sits in the shock as the thermometer then surges past 130 degrees and then the thermometer itself shatters. The paint on Norma's oil paintings begin to melt before her eyes and she screams and faints. It is then that the scene cuts to the same apartment at night with heavy snow outside the windows. The thermometer reads negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Norma, who had been bedridden with a High fever wakes to the reality that the world where the earth is moving closer to the sun is only a fever dream. While in reality, the earth is moving away from the sun and the world's inhabitants are actually freezing. The twilight zone. <laughs> More recent uh, versions of this twist is found in Inception, the movie where as you are drawn into the story, uh, you become uncertain of whether or not you're in a dream or in reality. Or Matrix, where for a portion of time you don't realize that you're actually in the Matrix. Or the Truman story with its own twist in that the main character isn't aware of reality and everyone else is watching him react to what in the end for him is not real. And what we discover in each of these stories is that one's perception of reality determines one's actions. One's perception of reality will determine one's actions. What is real? Whether or not we realize that every day we are living our lives out of our conviction of what we think is real. On Psalm 73, we have the privilege to step into the mind of a man, Asaph, as he reveals his struggle around his perception of reality. Not only do we gain from his conclusions, but we also gain from his story, a story I think is necessary for all of us to go through over and over again as we wrestle with what we see, what we think is reality, versus what is a dream. 
And I think Psalm 73 is interesting too, also because it's a microcosm of the overall story of the psalm. See, if you remember, not only are the individual psalms inspired by God, but even the order of it is inspired. So that the editor, Ezra, or the Ezra-like editor, is not only moved by the Holy Spirit to choose each psalm, but to order them in a way that expresses a story that we must, that we must go through. This, is, this psalm is an expression of that movement, of that overall movement of the songbook that we've been enjoying uh, this summer. So again, if you remember, which I don't expect you to, um, the psalms are made up of five books. Book one is about confrontation. All those psalms confronting the nations that there is only one king, the Messiah. But then we move to book two where there's communication. Book two focuses more on Israel's victories over the nations, but also the intent to communicate that God's love, concern for the world, for the nations, and his heart to have a Davidic-like king to rule over them. Book three, devastation. In the third book, there's a realistic picture of the conflict with the powers of the nations that ultimately ends with the devastation of God's people and the casting of Messiah's, Messiah's crown to the ground. The nations as a whole do not want His reign. The reality of the fallen world is that it is one of conflict, greater difficulty, and even devastation for God's people. Book four, the story isn't over. Book 4 serves to give God's devastated people a more mature perspective on the coming kingdom. It is a book that confirms the Lord's dominion across the ages. So we titled that Maturation, Maturing. And then Book 5 is Consummation, Consummation, in which assures God's people of the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom. Now, Psalm 73 uh, is the first psalm in book three, devastation. The majority of psalms in book three are like this psalm to one degree or another. They are complaints or laments, complaining or crying over the realities of living in a fallen, broken world. And so Psalm 73 follows the kind of the overall story of the, of the Psalms. The psalmist, like the book of Psalms, moves from a place of clear expression of truth through a time where that truth doesn't seem to reign true. And a matter of fact, the truth creates conflict and trouble, devastation, but then it moves into a place of maturity and ultimately of great hope, a consummation of all things under God. And I think these complaint psalms or these lament psalms um, are good for us. For they show us that what we are experiencing in our everyday lives, trouble, difficulty, conflict, as a result of following Jesus Christ is not unusual or wrong, but rather like the Psalms as part of our storyline, a story that is necessary for all of us to repeatedly walk through in life if we are going to be people who mature and live in reality versus in a dream. So for, flow, uh, for the sake of flow, the psalms can div be divided. This psalm can be divided up into five sections. The first is simply introduction, verses 1 through 3, where we find a clear expression of truth. The second section is the dream, verses 4 through 14. The third uh, is, is a waking up from that dream, verses 15 through 17. And then the fourth is reality 18 through 26, the reality of the wicked, the reality of the godly, and then fifth, hope, 
verses 27 and 28, a consummation of all things in God. And so the question is, what is real? Introduction, verses 1 through 3. Truly, God is good to Israel. That, that is, God is good to those who are in a covenant relationship with Him. Namely, He says here, uh, those who are pure in heart. So what, what Asaph is doing is he's establishing the truth. He's, he's wanting us to understand that this ultimately is what we can bank our lives in. Truly, he says this, God is good. He, he's good to those who are pure in heart. And, and so we need to understand what that means. It's the pure in heart are those who have been made pure. We'd call that justification. Made pure by God and are now living out that reality of being pu made pure by God. Sanctification. But here we understand they are not perfect. But ordering, rather ordering and living out their lives in loyalty to God in speech and action. So Asaph is stating this reality, a conclusion that he comes to going through an autobiographical inter internal tension and turmoil that we are about to enter into. <laughs> God is good. That, that might sound familiar to you. If you've been part of our MCs, you've probably gone through the curriculum, the, the four G's, and this is one of the G's. It is that if God is good, and we're trying to ask the question, is God good? Because if he is, I don't have to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. So is he good? What is that reality? Well, Asaph came to the conclusion that God is good, but not he didn't come to that conclusion through reading a book, but through internal tension that all of us need to go through. So look how he introduces that tension, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. <laughs> now that's a great attention getter. You've just established that God is good, but then you're telling me that you almost didn't believe it. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, as he looked on the godless, when I saw, he was envious. Now, whether or not they were really at peace or whether or not they were really at prosperity in their inner lives or even in their outer lives, they had curated so think Facebook, Instagram, YouTube channel, and all the other social medias that we use to present an impression on others. They had curated what others saw in such a way that Asaph's heart was in turmoil over the dissonance of life as he sees it. I think the psalm is impressive because of the candor. There's something comforting to know that others struggle with the same questions we struggle with, the same dissonance of life, the same internal struggles and tension and turmoil that we go through. Now, I just wanted to note one word here, and that's the word that's found in verse 3, to really help us to understand what he's wrestling with and struggling with. Verse 3, look at that word, prosperity. I think we lose the degree of internal turmoil of the translation of the word when we translate it prosperity because the word is shalom, the shalom of the wicked. 
The idea of shalom in the Old Testament is one of peace and welfare that is generally associated with God's people. It is understood as the holistic blessing of God's people for his people. It is a understanding, it is understood as a reality of those who are near God. But Asaph is saying, no, 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 it was not he as one numbered among God's people who was experiencing shalom, shalom, but rather as he saw it, it was those who had rejected God and who lived life centered around self, living life on their terms rather than on God's term, who were receiving, who were receiving and experiencing shalom. Um, when I dream, uh, when I sleep, I, I remember most of my dreams. I wake up almost every day and I can remember what I had dreamed. Now, my wife, Tamara, she does not remember any of her dreams, hardly. So when she does, she's excited to share about it. It's like, I remember a dream. And so she starts with these words. This is what I saw. Asaph, in like manner, this is what he saw. The dream. Verses 4 through 14. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Those were the days when fat was in. <laughs> in ancient Near Eastern Agrarian society, being fat was generally considered being prosperous. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. The wicked do not seem to be suffering from the frailties and adversities and disease and toilsome labor common to the rest of humanity. As a result, they're prideful, and that pride results in violence and excessiveness and foolishness. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. A necklace in ancient times and still is today was not just decorative. It was a token for you, for people to see this is what my life is about. And so he says, this is what the wicked said, what my life is about is pride. And swirling around everything they do is pride, and because everything about them is, is about them, it's not surprising that violence covers them as a garment. Violence is a justified, is justified by the ends, and so whatever I need to get to get my ends, that's what they're going to do. It's a life that disregards the rights of others, and in fact, they live at the expense of others. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Now, I don't know if this is what it meant in the day, in the sense of ancient days, but the first thing I think of is a cartoon character. It's a picture of gluttony, a loss of restraint, an indulging of every whim. Results in foolishness. You see there, their hearts overflow with follies. So as Asaph observes, there is no observable negative consequences for such godless behavior. They are, by all observations, getting away with murder. Thus, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily, a word of pride looking down on others. They threaten oppression. But their words don't just settle on, uh, on fellow, their fellow man. Their words are pointed toward heaven. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And so what effect does it have on people? We see it there. Verse 10, 
Therefore, his people turn back to them, that is, the wicked, and find no fault in them, the wicked. See, the, the power, the wealth, the influence of riches draw people in, and they are attracted. And again, kind of using that social media word, they become followers. They have followers. Power corrupts not only those who have it, but also those who want it, who want to get a piece of the action. And so verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, by the lack of God's immediate response, it doesn't seem, it does seem that evil is getting away. It, it doesn't seem that God really knows what's going on. It seems that God's knowledge of, of the wicked is kind of limited. See, when people sin, what are they doing? They're mocking God as irrelevant. Or, or let me turn it around to us. When we sin, we are mocking God as irrelevant for the moment. He's not real. Which is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, Galatians 6, 7 and 8, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, reap, will, from, will from the flesh reap corruption. That is a downgrade or a degrade. But when we don't see the wicked immediately or apparently reaping corruption, that is the dissolution of their lives, we begin to question like Asaph. See, we're all theologians with theological expectations. Every one of us here is made in the image of God, and as a result of this, we are theologians. We think about God. We, we consider how He should act. Uh, we have certain ideas of who He is, and we have expectations on that God. Well, Asaph had certain reasonable theological expectations, and what he saw didn't fit those expectations so that his perceived reality was eroding his faith with potential devastating actions. So verse 12, listen. He says, behold. He says, look. Drawing a conclusion. Have you ever said something like this? Um, why is it that those who cut corners, stretch the truth, or just simply outright lie, why is it that they get ahead? But when I work within the given framework, put in the expected time and mental focus, owning my own mistakes, it doesn't seem to get me anywhere. Have you ever said something like that? Or have you ever said it the way I did one time or maybe several times? Principles don't pay. Principles don't pay. And I didn't say that in, you know, there's some sense of truth in that. Um, you live in a world that is contrary to the rule of God. Uh, principles, if you live by your principles, sometimes it doesn't pay. No, no, no. When I have said it in the past, I've said it like a cynic. Principles don't pay. Yet you follow God, you're not going to get the kind of success you want. See, th th this is where 
reality, my understanding of reality, if it's distorted, I begin to think in those ways, and then I begin not only to think in those ways, but then I get to speak in those ways, and not only do I begin to speak in those ways, but then I get to act in those ways. Our perception of reality affects our daily actions. So he says, behold, look, he draws some conclusions He says, look, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. On the other hand, verse 13, all in vain, like grabbing smoke, pointless, have I kept my heart clean. For all day long, verse 14, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is referring to the internal kind of mental strife. He's trying to hold these two ideas, this this truth, but the reality that he thinks he's seen, he's trying to hold these in tension, and there's a struggle, there's an internal mental strife. He has given his heart and hands to godliness, yet he doesn't prosper. The wicked prosper, the more he sees it, and the longer he considers this conundrum, the more twisted he gets. Why is it about nightmares? <laughs> You're in the nightmare and you just want to get away. And so what do you do? You start running. And what is it about our legs at those moments? It's like we're running in mud. Or we want to cry out for help. And all of a sudden it's like we can't put words together. <laughs> nightmare. Oh, we just want to be woken up. Well, God's going to wake up Asaph, and he's going to do it in two surprising ways. Section 3, waking up from the dream, where God is moving him, where God moves us into a greater maturity, verses 15 through uh, 17. So Asaph is starting to come out of his dream. He says, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, what he's saying here is he's admitted now he's at the peak of his anger and he's ready to bag it all. Back to verse, to verse 2, he says, my feet had almost stumbled, my feet and my steps had nearly, sta- uh, nearly slipped. However, he's convinced that if he speaks thus, in other words, if he takes the conclusions that he has drawn from what he has seen, from what his perception of reality is, he's concerned that if he speaks thus, he would have betrayed the generation of God's children. See, this is the surprising effect of the community of God. God uses the community, the community of God's people, in order to awaken us to truth, to reality. Two simple principles here. Don't go it alone. God never intended his people to do life alone. And when God takes you into these times of internal turmoil, of doubt, don't break from the community. See, an authentic relationship with God has these repeated seasons of genuine questions, of genuine doubts. And it's in that that we enter into community with our turmoil like Asaph's. And what God does is he uses community to arouse us out of our dream states. And but what really fully awakens us is God's presence. 
God's presence. See, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's struggling. He's weary of trying to put these things all together in his own mind until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. See, the sanctuary is the place where God has chosen to meet his people. And it's there where God, God's beauty is found, according to Psalm 27, verse 4. It's there where his power and glory is seen, Psalm 63, verse 2. It is there where God's greatness is discovered, Psalm 73, verse 13. It is in the presence of God where God's people awaken. In Psalms, we looked at several weeks ago, in a psalm we looked at several weeks ago, Psalm 22, remember that, Psalm 22, verse 3 of that psalm reminds us that he is enthroned on the praise of God's people. So when God's people gather together, they worship him through song and hymns and confession and profession and the preaching of God's word. And it's in this worship, it's in this gathering together where we see God for who he really is. And it awakens us. But the beauty of it is that we don't have to just do that on Sundays. The beauty of it is that we can do this every single day. See, Jesus Christ has made a way in which we can enter into the presence of God the Father through his righteousness in such a way that every single day we should be taking the opportunity, taking the privilege to enter into his presence simply by getting into his word a few minutes, spending time in it, letting God speak to us through his word, being prayer. God, what do you have for me today? Help me to hear you. Help me to see you for who you are so that as I go out into this dream world, I'm living in reality. See, it's there where we get our perspective. So Asaph, he awakens from his dream into reality. And so here is the reality of the wicked, and here's the reality of the godly, section 4, verses 18 through 26. The reality of the wicked. Look at verse 18. Truly. Same word that we had in verse 1 when he's trying to state, make a statement of truth. God is good. Now he says, truly. You set them in slippery places. So the lack of pain, verse 4, and trouble, verse 5, and the indulgences and foolishness, verse 7, and the unchecked malice and threats, verse 8, and the blasphemy in verse 9, and all the following that they're getting, verse 10, and the ease and riches, verse 12, all of these, in reality, he says, are slippery places. A slippery place speeds the process of ruin. A slippery place is, keeps you from turning back even if you wanted to. It, it affords no recovery. These things result in ruin. You see that there? You make them fall in ruin, verse 18. What's he speaking of? Eternal ruin. When the rich young ruler walked away from the invitation by Jesus... Remember that? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew there was something missing within him. He's a rich young ruler. He has it all. But he says, there's something missing. There's something missing within me. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, all you need to do is this. You need to simply love the greatest good over your riches, me. Get rid of all your riches and have me, the greatest good. And remember, he walked away sad. For 
Luke tells us he was a man of great riches. Well, the disciples were shocked. They were shocked to learn how difficult it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it is as difficult as to push a camel through an eye of a sewing needle, literally. Who can be saved, they asked. Because they believed that those who had it all were the ones who were most blessed by God. And what actually they're discovering is God said, oh, no, that's your dream. The reality is, is success in this world is a slippery place. But then he says that all things are possible <laughs> through God. Or remember back in Romans 1 when we were looking at that, when God gives us what we want in our sin, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Remember that? That was the, the curse. The, uh, the, there's this, this movement downward. It's a downward trend, and the downward trend is that as those who are rejecting the Savior, Jesus Christ, he says, well, okay, if you don't want Jesus as your greatest good, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you think is your good. And he just gives them over and gives them over and gives them over. They think it's a blessing, but rather it's a curse. See, when you step into the presence of the Holy One unprotected, all is lost. So verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In giving them what they want, worldly success, the Lord has set them up to slip, to fall, to be ruined suddenly without recourse to face their greatest fears, that is, to stand naked before a holy God. That's terrifying. Imagine standing before a holy God with all those sins that you're hiding, that you've hidden from everybody here today. Family, you know, they don't know some things about you. You don't know some things about me. You don't know what's deep within the, our hearts you know the sin that exists there. And to think, if you're not protected, to, you may have hid it from all of us. You go into the presence of the holy and living God, it's there born out in your nakedness. That's terrifying. Unless you're protected. Unless you have a refuge. See, look at verse 20. Like a dream, when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Look who's living in the dream. And in this case, for the wicked, they wish the dream to continue because if they are aroused, if they are awakened, what they face is the nightmare. despise them as phantoms. The idea here is that the arrogant, they have set themselves up as God's doing and saying whatever they wish, living life on their terms. And he says, no, you know what? You're actually living in a fantasy world. You have no substance. Blaise Pascal, he's the French mathematician, great mathematician. Um, he was also a theologian, just like you and I are theologians. From the 17th century, he profoundly pointed out this. He said, in this consists the greatness and miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest and throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for a permanent and eternal bliss 
and seizes on the pleasures of a moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He's born son of the house and he feeds on the husks of the swine in the strange land. He forsakes the fountain of living waters and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water. He knew Jeremiah 2.13. He is a hungry man who dreams that he is eating. And when he awakens, finds that his soul is empty, and he is like a thirsty man who dreams that he is drinking, and when he awakens, finds that he is faint and that his soul has appetite. Isaiah 29.8. That's the reality of living for the dream of this world. Now, here's the reality of the godly, verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, and he was bitter, he was bitter at God, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, internally he was pained over the seeming success of the arrogant. There was envy, verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, as he reflected back on his estimation of the wicked, he he knows that they were oppressive. He said they're exploitive of the weak. He says they're mocking of the creator. He, He, asked Esau, realizes just how entirely skewed his perspective was. Not ruled by wisdom, he was more like an animal. But here's the grace of God when he's acting this way. Verse 23, here's the gospel. Nevertheless, even though he had been envious and full of self-pity, this was his reality. As he's kind of wanting the dream, he said, no, 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 here's the reality. I am continually with you. That was God's gracious work. What awakened Asaph was him stepping into the presence of God, but the reality was God never left. In his doubt and confusion and envy, God was present. He said he would never leave and forsake those who hold on to him as their greatest good, who have him as his refuge. Why is that? Well, because he says the next phrase, you hold my right hand. Why was it that he didn't slip, according to verse 2? Why was it that he didn't slip? Well, God was holding his right hand, and God is the one who holds us in our doubt. Grace. Gospel. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30 he describes his, he's describing himself as a shepherd and us as his sheep. He describes his sovereign shepherding role in this way. He says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So that not only is Asaph uh, is sure of his relationship with God, but he is confident in God's gracious teaching. He says, verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. So he says, God is guiding him with wisdom and insight as he travels this road towards everlasting glory. It is a picture of the king of the universe holding the right hand of the commoner and giving guidance and direction as he's walking along. And so now we begin to understand why he says at the very beginning, God is good. You lean into God. You trust in Him. You find Him as your refuge. This is what you get. 
A God who is gracious and who will hold you to the end. He will guide you and direct you and give you his counsel even as you are doubting. This is grace. What is real? God is good. (laughs) There's this beautiful moment in C.S. Lewis's first book of the Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew, where the two children... Digri and Polly. By the way, this is a children's book. I'm reading it right now because that's the way I think, and I think we all should be reading children's books, and <laughs> it's great. So the two children, Digri and Polly, they're on the cusp of returning to London from the land of Narnia, and they're looking into Aslan's face. Remember, he represents Jesus Christ. Looking into Aslan's face, and it says there, all at once, they never knew exactly how it happened. The face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating, and such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered them that they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that golden, what's the word? Goodness. God is good. All that goodness, golden goodness, and the feeling that it was still there quite close, just around some corner, just behind some door, would come back and make them sure deep down inside that all was well. See, see, as we walk out of here, we are going to continue to ask the question, what is real? And we're going to act according to what we perceive is real at the moment. What Digri and Polly were discovering is, is that as they got to know God, as they got to really understand, to, put the, to really see Him face to face, they discovered that wherever they went and all of the difficulties and trials and troubles they were going to have to be in, in the city of London, they knew that all is well because God is good. The rest of verse 24, he says, And afterward you will receive me to glory. And who will be there? God. See, see, what makes heaven so good is that God is there. Psalm 16, verse 11. We read these words. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we don't have to wait for eternity. We can enjoy Him now. We can enjoy Him in a small measure, the joy and, and pleasure of Psalm 1611 by just getting to know Him. Look at verse 25. This is His experience. So whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See, what has happened with, with Asaph as he's going along here, the reason he's able to say God is good is that he's going through the struggle, the realities of the internal uh, turmoil, turmoil that's going within him as he's looking what he thinks might be real out here. He's discovering that, no, everything that this world has to offer it will not satisfy. What I have discovered is, is that the only one who will satisfy is God alone. And so what does he do? He's, he's my refuge. He continues to be my refuge. And, and therefore, he is able to come at the end here and say, whom have I heaven but you? No one. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See, the more that we 
come to know him, to see him face to face as he reveals himself to us. He says, what do we are? We're theologians. We're really bad theologians <laughs> in our own self, in our own strength. But the word of God reveals to us who God really is and the Holy Spirit is in us and help in order to kind of correct our understanding of who God is so that then we can have a correct expectation and we can live life in reality. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, and one day it will, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. Nasaph is a man of now a greater hope. Verse 27, for behold, he says, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you Verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. Did you see the word there? But it is good. God is good. It is good to be near Him. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and as a result of making Him His refuge, what do you do? I then, that I may tell of all your works to others. See, his hope is not himself. If you look there back at verse 27, he says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. If my salvation was based upon my faithfulness, I would be having the end of the wicked. But you remember what we did here? This reminded us of the gospel. We had Hattie Carroll up here. We put the water on her because the water reminds us that it's a sign of not her faithfulness, but God's faithfulness on her. It's a reminder that all those who trust in, trust in Jesus Christ, that their sins are cleansed because not of our faithfulness, but because of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. See, Jesus Christ was faithful on our behalf. Jesus Christ rose up to the demands of the law. The demands of the law are we are to be perfect because a perfect God demands perfect people. The problem is, unless you're insane, and you don't think this, we're all imperfect. But Christ was perfect on our behalf. He lived the life that you should have lived. In order that as he went to the cross, he took your sins on him, received the wrath of God, and now becomes your cover. His righteousness, his right life now becomes your garments of which when your Life does fail you one day. You enter into the presence of God, into reality, and the reality is, is that you're a, His child, that you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And so He says, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all his works. 
So in this life, as we doubt, what do we do? We continue to go back to the gospel. We continue to go back and be reminded of what Christ did on our behalf and to remind ourselves that we are still children of God even though we have been unfaithful to him. We confess that. We ask for forgiveness and we're reminded again that what Christ did on the cross, he can offer us forgiveness. The basis of him saying, you're okay. My son died for you. If you have not placed trust in him, if he is not your refuge, you are going to wake up one day to the reality of the terror of facing a holy and living God. And so his invitation to you today is, like just that rich young ruler, his invitation to you is, look to Jesus Christ as your greatest good. Trust in him today as your Lord and Savior. He will be your refuge. He will protect you. He will hold you through all the doubts of life and bring you into glory, into the presence of God, into the presence of all that is good, God himself. Trust in him today. Father, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers. Remind us again, Father, as we take this bread that Jesus Christ was the one who took our sins in his body and died on the cross for us. Father, as we take this cup Remind us again that Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins to offer us a new covenant, a new promise, and that is a promise that you would live and dwell within us and keep us on into eternity. Our prayer, Father, is for anybody here today who are still trusting lesser goods, who are still trusting in themselves, that you'd wake them up, that they'd trust in Jesus Christ today and say, yes, (laughs) I have sinned. Nobody knows about. But I believe that Christ died for that sin. I want his righteousness to cover me. Father, hear that prayer. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.